Um, many of you might have read Richard Powers' amazing novel, The Overstory, about trees. It, it, it won the Pulitzer for fiction um, and was one of Barack Obama's top book recommendations. He said it changed the way he thought about the earth. Um, one of the main characters is a pioneering scientist who makes astonishing discoveries about trees that at first are widely dismissed, in part because she is a strong-willed woman who thinks beyond the way most traditional scientists think. The character is based, in part, on Diana Beresford Kroger, who Powers called a maverick. She is a botanist, medical biochemist, prolific author, poet, and a climate visionary. She also, before I wrote an article about her, she said, what you must do is lean against a tree before you write the piece, and I did. Um, she was raised learning ancient Celtic ecological knowledge, and she has dedicated much of her life to preserving the planet and revealing the countless ways that plants and trees support human health and souls. Her connection with the natural world is based on her vast scientific understanding of it and her deep spiritual connection with forests, and one of her champions included the late biodiversity pioneer E.O. Wilson. So sadly, Diana could not be here in person, but she'll be joining us up on the screen from her village in Ontario, Canada. And um, I want to add that she couldn't be joining from her house because she is defiantly low-tech, and the landline is as tech as she gets. So a little different from where we're at this morning. Um, Diana, thank you so much for being here, and welcome virtually to California. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I love California. Oh, good. Well, we're glad to have you here. Um, so I love Diane, being there. So I want to start with your personal story, so the foundation of all the great work you've done. Can you tell us where you grew up and what were your first encounters with the plant world? Well, I grew up, I, grew, I was born in England, um, Anglo-Irish. I'm a mongrel, aristocratic mongrel on my mother's side and my father's side. Um, and then I went to school in Ireland and my family were killed when I was about 11, the car crash. And I was made an orphan. And being an orphan with my background, my castle and family home is the Castle of Ross, R-O-S-S, -S, you can look it up on the internet. That's mama, my mother's mummy's castle and the other one is, uh, is Curramore in County Wexford. So I have a Banchankus, that is a pedigree of, of 3,000 years. And because I had a Banchankus, my mother's family taught me, brought me under Brehan laws. These are old, old Celtic laws. And everybody listening to me right now, these are the laws that your forefathers knew and understood about the environment. So I was brought in a three-year wardship and uh, tutored in these laws and in these medicines and in the script, the ancient script, the Ogham script, which is the script of the English language. I was taught all of these things and then I was told that, now listen to me very carefully what I'm saying. I was told I would be the last child from the Brehan world, from the ancient world of Ireland. And I was told to bring the message of the ancient world into you. And the time is now. I was told at the time now that the, t the world would be in very bad shape. It would be heating up and there would be a lot of floods. 
and the ancient wisdoms, not necessarily the, the, the knowledge, but the ancient wisdoms of the Celtic world was important to discuss with all of you now in the time of now. And actually it gives me the creeps a little bit too. So um, uh, really, because I'm here, I've done it, I'm here. And I've written all these books I, and, and it has happened. So listen very closely to all the other speakers also because this is the first step forward for everybody across the planet. If you were to encapsulate the Breton laws and the message, you know, I know it's a, it's, it's a huge body, but yeah. in this moment, what would the message be if we could, you know, grab it at its root? Encapsulate them. Um, it, it means that actually there was more protection given to the forest at the time of the Brehan Laws 2,000 years ago at the time of Christ than there is now. The trees were considered to be sacred beings. The trees were considered to have an identity. And all of most of all of the medicines, ancient medicines, were produced from the virgin forest. And I've seen one of these medicines just once in the forest around you right now. And uh, um, those were in California. Mm. Now, for, for the Brehan Laws, if the people, all of the people who are taking down the forest now, under Brehan, they would be punished right now. Under Brehan, they would have to make reparation to all of you because the forest represented liberty, liberty and democracy. And the democracy and liberty are being taken from people under the name of the forest and that would be stopped mm. and it would be a very very important thing to do because it was considered at that time that forests are the foundations of the world and forests are the medicines of the world and actually this this past 10 years we are starting to find out that that is actually true the, the Brehan Uluna the people who were the, the aristocratic um, uh, intelligentsia of the Celtic world understood and knew this and at the time, so that you do know at the time of this, 2000 years ago, the physicians in Ireland were able to do C-sections just think about that mm. When you went to university you put a lot of these things you learned to the test, I remember you talked about as a young girl going out in the morning dew of Ireland and putting shamrock dew on your face with the other ladies and then finding out at university that there were flavonoids in the shamrocks that had anti-aging yeah. properties and all this stuff. So there was a scientific legitimacy. It was traditional yeah. it was traditional knowledge. Was that a surprise <laughs> to you at all to realize, oh, they were, they were right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, really, to kind of go back on that, um, I, my, I was raised um, by my uncle, who was a bachelor. I was given into his hands. And I was under uh, wardship under his hands, under the, the eye of the court. And I was supposed to have been put into a Magdalene laundry. I was supposed to be washing clothes for the people of the city of Cork in the south of Ireland. And the judge was afraid to put me into the Magdalene laundry because my father's family are all lords and ladies and marquees and so on and so forth. And they're still there with their still titles. And um, he was afraid he'd lose his job. So then I, I was told, um, I, I actually got scholarships, and when I was 15, I, I did 
second degree, second year math, uh, mathematics for engineering and so on and so forth, and the nuns really pushed me ahead. So when I got into the medical library at the University College Cork, holy mother, I thought I was in heaven. So I thought all of these strange things that I've been told, I'm going to put them to the fire. I'm going to put them to the test. So I, I kind of proceeded through the library and I, I was kind of buried in an avalanche of books. And to my astonishment, I found that the biochemistry of what you're talking about, the hesperin, heparin, in, in shamrocks, on, on the first day of Bar on Bialthana, the day, sacred day in Ireland, you put it on your face, and for a woman, you don't get wrinkles. <laughs> and I saw all the women around me, and they were doing all of this. And, you know, I have to tell you, this is a secret now. You're listening to a secret here. In we'll possibly Canada, get out. I do the same thing, so don't tell anybody. We don't want to do run on shamrocks. <laughs> um, I do the same thing. Yeah. And it's um, the medicines of all of the medicines, actually, including the antibiotics, anti-cancer materials. I, of course, then became very interested in this, and that's what my all of my research and PhD work and all of the other stuff uh, was backing that. You know, And I refused... But then, in glory, I refused a professorship of medicine to do what I'm doing now, to sit in front of you, because I think what you're doing and what I'm doing is very important. Um, and you left academia, academia in the 80s. Yeah. You had moved to Canada. Can you just briefly tell us that, and then we'll go into your arboretum to talk about your Well, arboretum. I did leave academia, because I'll tell you, now, you can put your fingers in your ears if you want to, um, some of the most stupid people in the world I've ever met, I've met in all the different academias. Um, they are close to knowledge. They are close to Aboriginal knowledge. They're close to ancient knowledge. Now, this is about 40, 50 years ago, and they just wouldn't listen to anything. It's as though the ordinary people were totally idiotic and stupid. And I really object to that. I think we can learn from everybody, everybody, everywhere. And I was doing that. I was sweeping, sucking up knowledge in all kinds of disciplines. And I think that's very important for the time of now. So I came to Canada, and I live in the countryside. I have 160 acres. I have an arboretum. I have all of the species of the Aboriginal world there safely protected so that I can give them out into the near future. So that's kind of what I'm doing. Yes, this is amazing. So these trees, you've sort of gone on a hunt for some of these trees, and you found <laughs> that the native, the, the, the most genetically pure native species are more climate change resistant. Can you speak a little yeah. bit about that and also about hanging uh, out of the helicopter? Yeah, now that, come here, that is very, very important. Um, the ancient, the ancient trees, now just sit and think about this. The ancient trees have the library within them to withstand climate change. So, of course, I have a bucket list because I have a huge arboretum. I have a bucket list and one of them that I was after for about, about 25 years was Petalia trifoliata Chrysidifolia. Now, to you folks, that's the way for ash. But it's the criticity, it's the it's the green, green form of the way for ash. So I was uh, down in, in Texas, uh, happened to know a lot of interesting people down in Texas. And um, one woman I know, she has her own army, and she also has her own, her own air force. Now, <laughs> this is true. So... 
uh, one day she asked me for tea and I was coming out of this bed that was really high up in the air and I had to get a steps out of these beds and I fell down on the floor and I cursed and swore very loudly and I thought, oh my God, nobody would want to even talk to me now. But again, she had me in her house and then I knew she had these huge, she has six ranches, right? Huge, huge, I mean ranches, like blinking countries. So I said to her, do you happen to have Petalia trifoliata crucidifolia? And she said, well, we, in one ranch, we've never made any changes. So I said to her, is it a 12,000 foot high mountain you own? Yes, it is. Is it a shale mountain? Yes, it is. Is there gravel on it? Yes, there is. And I said, you do have that tree. You're the last person in the world to have that tree. So she, I, she had a helicopter for me. And I gridded for four days, hanging from the helicopter with leather straps and a pair of binoculars. I gridded a huge, huge, massive area day after day after day. Now, let me tell you, I'm terrified of snakes. So anyway, I saw it first thing one morning. Oh, my God. They were like shining little dollar pieces hanging on a tree. So I said to the, the I shouted to the, the, the captain of the, the helicopter, um, through my hearing system, let me down, let me down, let me down. So, of course, I'd forgotten I was on the helicopter, so he brought me down, and it was my petalia. And I started crying, and I went and I threw my arms around the tree. So I am really a tree hugger. I found the tree, and near the tree were all these awful snakes, and I forgot about the snakes. I was so excited. It is now under arm guard, and it will be under armed guard until it is until it's fully propagated. Let me tell you what medicines it has. It has synergistic medicines. If I give you one aspirin, its effect will become a hundred aspirins. And the same goes for all of the treatments for cancers. So think about that. Right. Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Um to everyone in the room, if you have any questions about trees or anything for Diana or something you want to share about trees in your life, please write it on the card and hand it to the roving producers. Okay, so Diana, UN research shows that to keep warning, warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, we'll need to remove about 6 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere yeah. by 2050. Mm -hmm. The same as annual U.S. emissions today. Uh, you told me that trees are the best and the only thing we have right now to fight climate change cheaply and do it fast. But there's only yeah. so much arable land, and trees are said to provide only half of the removal needed. Do you agree that there's not enough land to plant the trees we need? No, I don't agree with that. Um, you had, in the United States, you had the terrible dust storms of the 1930s. And we're actually returning to this. Um, and you had a president called Roosevelt. And Roosevelt was very smart. He uh, got a huge group of people out. I mean, out planting um, Gladitia species. They're honey locusts. They're the internal species of honey locusts. And there's all kinds of research done around those honey locusts. It stopped the storms from destroying the farming land. And they were planted all over the United States. So a lot of them are gone now. And let me say to you, there are trees that can grow on almost nothing. So let's look at the 73,000 or plus families of trees. Let us look at all of that. We need those trees. Some trees are 
feeding trees. Some trees produce all kinds of nuts and all kinds of other things that the farming community can get the benefit from, from that. Now, let me tell you something that is very important. Einstein did not have the answer to this uh, observation that he had made when he was in Princeton. He was looking at light. Light comes in a straight line vector and in a sine wave lecture, le vector. In two forms, it lands on Earth. The first form is straight line. The second form is a wave vector. And that wave vector lands on the surface of leaves and the leaves farm the sun. All forests all over the world farm the sun. That is what makes the world a living planet. That what gives us, listen now, do an experiment. It gives us our oxygen. So I'm going to ask the crowd there listening to me, stop breathing for the next hour and see how smart we can all be. That oxygen comes from trees, a little bit from the oceans, a little bit from elsewhere, from degradation, oxidation, reduction reactions. The majority comes from trees. Too many trees, too many forests all over the world have come down. Too much. When we were taking down these forests, we did not know that they were molecular machines. The green machine of a forest has a DNA system exactly the same as you have and I have, except for two bases. And they are intelligent machines that are capable of farming the sun, farming the photons of the sun. And here, let me drop something extraordinary into you, because this man has just got a, a Nobel Prize for this. Entanglement. I think trees are capable of doing entanglement. These are some of my thought experiments. So someone of you guys go out there and prove this. Now, trees have to be there to regulate the weather patterns. Their humic acid and humic acid and fulvic acid that they produce on the leaves right now, going into the water right now, produces and forms um, chelating agent that goes into the seas and that carries iron into the seas. So they regulate the balance of the oceans and of the seas. You have Nosticales, Camosiphonales, all kinds of species out in the oceans that require this iron. I bet you never thought about that. It's Matsunaga Matsuhiko, a man in, in Japan, a friend of mine who is the top marine specialist in Japan, came up with that answer. So the trees are important to life. They're important to your life. And we have to have them for a living planet. So it doesn't matter what kind of tree it is. Let's, let's, let me talk about my film call of the forest, the forgotten wisdom of trees. With that is a, an app telling you what you can plant all on the face of North America. The best that you have here for California. Oh my God, you've got the sequoias. For heaven's sake, keep planting those sequoias. They are very, very important to water in, in, in California. But is so, there, okay, now, Is there enough to draw down the carbon, though? I mean, if we don't have, it's been said we don't have enough land to plant enough trees to draw down the carbon. Yeah. So, okay, yes. Let me answer that. Okay. Okay, we have 412, something like that, parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere right now. So if you plant every person, this is my global bio plan for planting, for saving the planet. Every person on this planet for the next six years, you plant one tree native to native, native species to native area. 
for the next six years, you will have in the ballpark of 50 billion trees put back into the planet. You will pull the CO2 event down from the 410 backwards into the 300s. You can stabilize that at the 300 in the 300s and it reduces the temperature, it reduces the greenhouse effect, it gives us time to re-regulate the carbon cycle. That's what it will do for us. And it's a very simple thing, it's very cheap. You can go out and get an acorn if you really feel that you've got a terribly bad back and you can't possibly use a shovel, then go and get a trowel, get an acorn and get your kid to plant an acorn. So it's a very simple thing to do. And while you're about planting an acorn, would you plant a blue acorn, the, the Quercus Douglasii, because they're getting endangered in California, and it's a disgrace. Okay, thank you. <laughs> it's a disgrace, California. Um, so one of your passions is the boreal forest, uh, largest uh, land biome, biggest land-based carbon store on Earth. It's witnessed more tree loss than any other forest through yeah. fires. Um, Russia has, has destroyed areas the size of France. Um, you told me about the unique health benefits from the boreal um, and what's so special about it. And also what happens in spring, which was I did not know with, with the boreal, <laughs> what it, how it affects many of us. Can you, can you speak to that a bit? Yes, there are populus, the populus tremuloides, which is a, a very large tree up in the boreal. And by the way, the boreal forest is the last great intact forest system on the planet. It is the workhorse of the planet. And very few people know there is even a boreal forest, actually, up in the north of the planet. Canada's got a lot. America's got a lot. Russia's got the taiga. And then there are the other European countries. It's like a crown, the crown on the planet. It is actually, it's the crowning glory of the planet. So populus tremuloides. Now, it is a very large tree in Russia. It's a very large tree in Canada and also in the rest of the forest. But what this particular tree does is very, very, very interesting. In the winter time, it produces these kind of um, oleo, they're called oleo resins. They're buds on the trees. Okay. They're just brown buds on the trees and they're coated with a kind of an oily substance, which is an oleo resin. But as the sun hits those trees, it melts the oleoresin and it goes into the air. But the air, this is the first great blush of, of uh, aerosols into the air for forest bathing. It climbs into the air and comes down south. And what these oleoresins contain is prostaglandin and prostacyclin. And it, it has all kinds of prostaglandins. Actually, they're numbered prostaglandins within the biochemical uh, for, formula and biochemical books for the use on the body. But let me tell you what they do for the male body. It is something very interesting. All of the men, they're, um, let's call it their... Uh, uh, masculine part of their body. It gives them a greater strength in the masculine part of their body. And that is why we say, oh, you have spring fever. And that is why we say, and it affects the heart also as a positive effect on the heart. That's why men get very active in the, in the springtime. And I am not even going to mention women. It is a flush of aerosols that goes into the atmosphere, comes down south and affects every single mammal 
on the planet. And I think that's very, very important. It is the ecological shield of the world. It is one of the things that sterilizes the atmosphere. And that is why you don't have a filthy, dirty atmosphere. That is why you have a sterile ability to breathe the air because it has that flush with it. Now that's worth saving. That's worth saving. All right, we're going to take um, some questions from the audience. I think Wanda on my left has a question, has a query about young people. Ah. You're <laughs> thrilling me. I'm going forest bathing tomorrow, literally. Okay. But I would like to hear your thoughts on engaging youth in planting and caring for trees. Well, I will tell you something. Um, in my experience, and I've spoken to a lot of the youth with forest schools and so on and so forth, at university as well, um, when you take a cutoff of 20 years old and, and younger than that, they seem to have a better understanding of the problems of climate change. And even the little suckers, the little babies uh, who are five-year-old in, in kindergarten, those little suckers know that trees are the lungs of the planet. I don't understand that. And I've talked to some of these tree, these kids, um, and I've talked to these kids down in, in Fort Worth, as a matter of fact, all of the children of Fort Worth, I've talked to all the school kids, and I've asked them if they have a ghost in their mind. They are very, very worried about climate change, and somehow they seem to suck by osmosis all of the knowledge around them. And I think it's not, there's not much persuading you have to persuade the children, and I'm talking about young little kids, up to 20-year-olds to save the forest. The problem is the parents and the grandparents. They need to be educated. And, of course, the prophecy in Ireland is, is that the children will educate their parents. All right. Um, and now we're going to go to Marnie on my left for another query. Thank you so much for your work, <laughs> Diana. I'm a huge fan. Thank you. Um, I wondered what the experience was that you had when Richard Powers created a fictional heroic character out of your life. And as you are a great storyteller, Celtic storyteller yourself, I wonder what you think the impact of telling stories is in this uh, movement. Um, the only thing we have are stories. We have nothing else. You and I, you and I and all of the members of the planet, we have nothing else but our stories. And you either listen to them or you don't listen to them. That's what Cara does. Cara Buckley there next to you. She tells the story of everything. She learns the story. But now Richard Powers, let me tell you a very funny thing. This is a secret between you and me. Richard, me darling Powers, um, started writing about me and he wrote the book, you know, the over, the over, the, um, overstory. He wrote the book, but it was sent to me way ahead of time. I, I, the, a lot of the publishers kind of clued in that it was me. So I got this, the book sent to me, uh, six months ahead of time. But do you realize that an Irish woman in slang is called Patricia? And so, um, Beresford is my name. So he called Patricia, Be uh, Patricia Westerward, Beresford. So you see, so you, you, you get the onomatopoeia of my name <laughs> throughout the book. The only problem with poor old Richard, he should have blinky well interviewed me and got a couple of more things because I've done a whole lot more things <laughs> in surgery. Um, 
you know, um, I've done, I've made the, the artificial blood for tissue transplanting all over the world. I've made the blood for cardio, cardio uh, research again all over the world. Uh, so, Richard, um, you could have done, done a little better on this little woman here. Okay. But of course, being an Irish woman, you know, you have to shut up. <laughs> but now I'd like to just say one, one little thing to all of the audience. Will you please do this for me? Will you go out to the evergreens and sequoia dendrons, the sequoia sempervirens will do, your redwoods will do for this. Will you please forest bathe, start forest bathing right now. Will you please walk around the trees for 15 minutes, one, once a month, every month, and you could do it in California for the rest of the year. Every month you get a protection from cancer because the neutrophils change and your, 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 your T-cell ratio in your body changes. It gives you a full protection to cancer. So please, all of the audience do this. And don't laugh at it. It is a really true. The clinical trials were done mm. in Japan uh, with a good a colleague of mine, King Lee, and he had picked this up from my book, Arboretum America, Philosophy of the Forest, which is something you should read too, to save uh, part of California. But for saving yourself for COVID, anti-COVID, antivirals, all the meningococcals that are coming. Please do that for me. And I want you all safe and then planting trees. Right. I mean, I'll just say that there has <laughs> been studies out of Europe showing that people in forested areas had lower levels of, of COVID. Um, you have opinions about eucalyptus trees in California. Can you speak? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, gosh, yes, I do. The, the eucalyptus species of the, the hundreds of eucalyptus species that were trans, transported and, 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 and planted in California. Now, do you understand something about the eucalyptus? It just horrifies me. They're fire spreaders. They, sh they spread sheets of fire in across California. I, like I, I just go crackers when I think about it. You planted them because what they do is they shed their bark. And the bark is full of resins. Now, if you were, to, if I were to take all of you into a scientific lab, we would do a, what's known as a closed cup experiment. We would put some of the bark into this closed metal cup and it will turn the temperature, its standard room temperature and pressure up to 47 degrees C and they will burst into flame all by themselves. You have had those temperatures in California this past year. You are particularly under the gun for all of this. Will you please plant sequoia dendrons? Will you please plant the bishop's pine? Will you please plant the, all of the other, your native species, and forget, for God's sake, forget about your, your eucalyptus because they're a danger to all of you. Look, somebody on a motorbike, traveling on a motorbike, can flick a butt into the eucalyptus and you've got a fire. You've got a raging fire. So, Listen, listen up here. I tried to do this the last time I was lecturing in California and I tried to talk to the governor and I don't know whether he wanted to speak to me or not, but I didn't manage to do it. I would have, I would say this to the governor too. Please listen up to this. Um, you know, you want everyone to plant one native tree a year for six years. What about people? What can people do in dense urban environments that don't have a place? There to are plant such things as city forests. City forests, urban forests. And if you can't go out and plant a tree, will you go out and find a kid and give him a couple of bucks and ask him to plant a tree? We can all do this. 
I know that in the city, actually, as a matter of fact, in the city, you need them more than you do in the countryside almost, mm. because in the city, they cleanse the air. There are the, the black walnuts that cleanse benzene out of the air. And that's really good for kids. It's really good for older people. So, you know, I could actually go on and on about this for hours. <laughs> I'm not going to bore the death out of you. But it's very, very important. And for children, will you please plant tuya plicata around children's schools and daycares and nurseries and old age homes? Can you please do that? Because it prevents, it stops viral infestation for children. Thank you. This, unfortunately, we could chat all day. I mean, I have with you and I hopefully <laughs> will again. Um, as a closing question, do you, you've said that an understanding we need to know about the plant world starts with poetry. Um, and yes. what do you, and then you're going to, I think, speak in Irish at the end of this, but what do you mean by that? And do you think there's something about nature that is inexplicable and doesn't need explaining? Half of the world have forgotten about nature. Half of the world lives in an urban setting and they forget that the rest of us live with the country. The country is a learning that nature, the land, there is land-based knowledge, which is, it means literally learning from the countryside. Today, I had a, a white robin land in my garden and yesterday I had a golden eagle circling over my head. We need to learn these things. We need to know that they're important. But the other thing, that we need to know is a transfer of knowledge from the from the city into the country and the country into the city. We need to have that. It is very, very important. Education is very important. I brought a bunch of kids into in a school with their teachers, four classes together in there, and I asked the teachers to look out the window and name the trees. This was a, a class of biology. Not one teacher could name any one of the trees outside the window. How can they possibly teach the kids if they don't know how to do that? Mm. So uh, it's, this is a long journey. This is a long journey because we have to we have to pick up where we left in destroying the world. We have to put it back together. And of course, the the prophecies are that uh, the Irish prophecies actually are too that we will put the land together. And the, that's my concept of the bio plan. And the bio plan is take each little part of your world around you be it a pot on a balcony, look after that, look after the trees, look after the, your street, look after the people of the street. And we'll all hold hands together and we'll be able to join, join our hands across the world. And we're doing it right now, as a matter of fact. And that will actually save the planet. Mm. Now, I want to give you a blessing from Ireland. And I was asked to do this when I was 12 years old. And the blessing is in Gaelic, and I'll give you a translation, and it's from the 5th century. And what I'm saying to you now is, Beg dialath, agus gemegtumyo, agus gnairithu. And what this means is, may you walk with the divine, and may you have life like yeast, you know, rising in bread, agus gnairithu, and may you rise with your life and enjoy it. And that is a shawl shanfakal, an old word, world word, words from the fifth century. You wear them like a mantle around you. And please remember, you have been blessed with these ancient Celtic words. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Thank you.